Welcome to Looking at Race Through Classical Music. This episode will be a discussion of how the presence of classical music and the lack of it in certain communities parallels the color line that is so prevalent in our society today. You may ask, why classical music? Well, it's not only one of the things I know best, but if we truly want to look at racism and how we can be anti-racist, we need to look at some of the institutions and communities in which we can really see the color line through lack of opportunity, stereotypes, and the centuries of systemic racism that have kept these communities how they are. One of the sources that inspired my podcast was Seeing White from Seen on Radio, uh, the podcast from Duke University. Perhaps the most valuable lesson I learned from this podcast was the idea that it would be completely possible to have a racist society, even if we didn't have any individual racists. This totally shaped my perspective because I was then inclined to look at classical music, and although there are definitely individual racists in most places and communities of classical music, the main reason it is so excluding is because of subconscious racism and the ripple effects of it. So let's start with some basics and context. When Europeans came across the Atlantic, so did their musical traditions. However, when their very economies, jobs, and lifestyles were held up by their enslaved Africans, you'd maybe think that black music would maybe play a role in some of the most desired music, some of the classical music, but definitely not. Although so many people seem to recently be appreciating more jazz and rap these days, these are all categorized as music for black people and always have been. Now, I'm not really sure how to think about this, because I do wonder if the rise of appreciation for this music has come because of a rise in awareness and a call to hear black voices. And I say seem to really appreciate, because it's not because we didn't know this music wasn't incredible before. It's because we categorized it as a black thing. People would say it's for the ghetto and not for white society at all. Anywho, it's important to realize that classical music has never welcomed its doors to black Americans. In fact, according to a 2014 study by the League of American Orchestras, less than 2% of American orchestras are black and about 4.3% of conductors are black. These percentages are filled with centuries of racial bias and stereotypes. It's interesting because when I was talking to my voice teacher about this podcast, she said, well, yeah, every time, I tell my, uh, every time I tell people I'm a musician, I have to specify I'm a classical musician because people will immediately assume I'm a jazz or a gospel singer because I'm black. I thought that was really interesting because it just shows how our subconscious racism enforces these distinctions so often. Though I do want to talk about the actual music itself and why it sounds so white, how composers tried to keep a, sen- a sense of cleanliness, unfortunately meaning whiteness, let's first touch on what I mean when I say ra- racial biases and stereotypes. Perhaps the best information I read in pre- preparing for this podcast was an article from the New York Times titled Black Artists on How to Change Classical Music. Definitely check it out. The article highlights on how if we actually want to see equality for musicians and in all aspects of society, we need to work from the inside out and actually look at where these racial biases start. Oftentimes, orchestras or opera productions and companies say, oh, we're opening auditions to everyone and choosing the symphony blindly with a screen up. That way we'll have diversity because we're not seeing the people and... If the judges even realize their own subconscious racism, they'll say, our internal biases won't affect us. If only it was that simple, though. The singer Lawrence Brownlee says, There needs to be community engagement, not community outreach. 
Outreach is something you do occasionally, but you're always in the act of engaging. It's a constant effort. If there are changes in the administration and the makeup of the board, every level of artistic organization, that will spill into how the stuff is packaged. This is the beginning of a change that can be meaningful. Another quote to help me explain this comes from the New York Times article, Musicians on How to Bring Racial Equality to Auditions. In it, an excerpt from Lina Gonzalez Granados states, So getting rid of the audition screen is useless useless unless we take care of other steps. I believe in the power of quotas and seeing a group of applicants that might reflect the demographics of a community. In line of resumes, just start with audio. But then you would have to take into account whether the audio has good quality, which is still an issue of access. With every part, there are flaws, but acknowledging you will never have a perfect system is a step into getting a better one. End quote. Essentially, symphonies, operas, conservatories, they all need to understand that the lack of racial biases and the presence of diversity in their orchestras or productions does not come from that single audition day itself. It comes from years of engagement in the community, like Brownlee said, and it comes from policies that truly acknowledge the underprivileged communities and the lack of access for many people of color. T.S. Underwood, a member of the Nashville Symphony, puts it best by referencing um, Ibram X. Kendi's ideas. He says, The goal as we see it isn't simply to make American orchestras more diverse. Rather, it is to make them anti-racist. An anti-racist orchestra might have a hiring process that recognizes the need for corrective action. He then goes on to say, an anti-racist orchestra might define the work so that more qualities like artistic vision, interest in going in ongoing learning and development, and ability to authentically engage various audiences are all valued in the hiring process. So now let's talk about the music itself, because I think it plays a large role in the biases we just talked about. Like I said in the beginning, if the music of slave songs, spirituals, and jazz would have been accepted into our classical music decades back, today it would be a completely different story. And perhaps we wouldn't see Du Bois's color line being the problem of the century as present as we do in so many aspects of society today. In conservatories and music schools everywhere, composers like Brahms, Beethoven, and Bach are held at the highest level, whereas Gershwin, one of the few composers who, though he was white himself, has implemented black music into his compositions, he's not put in the same place that Brahms is. And I'm guilty of this too. I absolutely love Brahms and Bach and hold them at the highest rank as far as composers go. But perhaps if the first time I heard about Gershwin and his opera Porgy and Bess was before high school, maybe I would have a different outlook on classical music and the communities it inhabits. Conductor Roderick Cox puts it beautifully. Even though I'm a person of color, I was guilty of not being accepting of new voices and styles outside of Beethoven, Schumann, and all the usual music of the past. When we start with preconceived notions, we limit ourselves. People are afraid of being uncomfortable, but with discomfort comes growth. If students learn about new composers like William, or sorry, they learn about composers like William Grant Still or Florence Price and their approaches to making music, then they will become more versatile. And we will see that change taking place in our programming. Schools just won't be producing co- conductors who want to do Wagner, Strauss, and Mahler. I love these composers, but there are more, more voices to hear, he says. Even if you have no idea who these composers are, that's totally fine. The idea is to recognize how the color line affects all things in our society. My point here is that I took these ideas and I tried to look at them through a lens of something I know best. So I urge you to look at the things in your life, look at how race affects them, or maybe I should say how they are affected by race. I really appreciate how in the Seeing White podcast, episode 6 talks about colorblindness. In it, Shannon Sullivan says... 
It's almost like a pride in being completely clueless about the world in which we live as white people. If we can't see our own whiteness along with other races operating in it, that actually allows white supremacy to hum along quite happily unchallenged. Then she says, if you can't see race, how in the heck are you going to see racism? And I think so many musicians would use this term. They would say that they're colorblind. They would say, well, we don't see music, we hear it. And although that's true, it's not about that when we're thinking about equal opportunity, redlining in communities, things like that. In the book Classical Music in America by Joseph Horowitz, he talks about what he thinks were missed opportunities for classical music to be more inclusive ever since the 1600s. He talks about a prediction that the famous Czech composer Antonin Dvorak made in 1893. Dvorak told the New York Herald, the future of this country must be founded upon what are called the Negro melodies. This must be the real foundation of any serious and original school of composition to be developed in the United States. This was a pretty radical view at the time, and I guess kind of still is, but Horowitz believes that if certain composers, compositions, and players weren't shut down and taken out of classical music because of the racist biases and programs we have, then Dvorak's prediction would have come true. Horowitz also talks about the aesthetic of the music itself, and how many composers were not really comfortable with the vernacular of non-European music just because of the way they had been musically trained, but that's for another day. So at this point, like I said, I simply urge you to look at your communities, at engagement programs, things of the sort, and what you can do to make the color line less prevalent in your everyday activities. Obviously, it's not something we can do overnight at all, and it takes all of us to do it. However, I think it definitely starts with a step of awareness. Thank you so much for listening.